Welcome to The Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at The Post and Courier. My name is Dave Infante, food reporter here at The Post and Courier. So, Dave, when we talked recently, we had talked about uh, a review I'd written of a restaurant called Dashi in North Charleston. And at the time, um, my concern was they weren't going to take well to me suggesting aspects of their business were racist. Right. Right. So we really remember we went back and forth about the philosophy. I do remember that. I remember the specifics of it. Yeah. Right. And folks could go back to that episode if they don't. Right. Uh, But so as it turned out, there was no... um, no pushback on racism. The the those uh, the allegations that their logo was not um, culturally sensitive did not seem to register either with the owners of the restaurant or its loyal supporters. Um, what really set them off was that I described the food they serve at this restaurant as stoner food. Yeah, your persona non grata now. Yeah, yeah, so we wanted to we wanted to make sure to cover this on the podcast because they are printing up anti. I saw that. Yeah, t-shirts, printing up t-shirts. So we want folks around town to know what are these anti Hanaraskin pro stoner food shirts. Right. So I saw the sticker version. I haven't seen the t-shirt version. yet. T-shirt versions in the works. Okay. I think it's it's going fall out fall winter twenty nineteen. Yeah. <laughs> right. As you update your fall wardrobe, <laughs> this is a really nice addition. I don't know the color or size selection yet yeah and just for just for everyone who anyone who hasn't seen this sticker because while dashi is very popular with its uh constituents i'm sure a lot of people haven't come across it on social media um i think it's something like i love stoner food right like it's their logo and i love stoner food yes and it has like a not so nice thing about you below (laughs) it's a hashtag that says screw hannah raskin screw you hannah raskin right 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 and so the stoner food thing first surfaced in well i First surface my story where I wrote it, but the uh, resentment toward the stoner food descriptor was almost instantaneous. And people said, and you can fill me fill in here if I, I don't have this quite right, but they said, you know, I'm not a stoner, or you know, the owners aren't on drugs. Um, none of that had occurred to me when I used the phrase stoner food to describe the cuisine at Dashi. Um, but I was aware that stoner food might not be something all of our readers of the Post and Courier are familiar with. So while I was writing that review, when I got to that sentence and typed it, I then texted you, Dave, you to asked, say— You asked your pal, Dave. I, I said, yeah. Dave, do people know what stoner food is? And you said— <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's. I think I, I actually reviewed my text before we came in here. I said something along the lines of, that's definitely in the lexicon. Absolutely. And it turns out I was definitely not— We were not, so yeah. wrong. <laughs> we were so wrong. <laughs> so, uh, and it's always good for us to, like, acknowledge our, our biases, and you're very good at that professionally. But, like, just to point out— out. Like, I definitely, I think, probably got a little caught off with, like, you know, I spend a lot of time around food writers and, and food media, and, like, that's a very familiar concept to me. Um, it may not be as familiar to some of our readers. It was a great reminder because I think as food writers, you know, sometimes we'll pause if it is, you know, if – if we're using foreign language terms, for for instance, or if we're using, you know, like if you've had to be anything the, about wine, also anything you, have, any, about wine, you, know, you want to be very sensitive with. not to condescend and not to talk down and assume people know what it means, right? And just really any big word in general, like you want to make sure. I mean, <laughs> what's really, the, what's, how what's many the grade syllables? level, yeah. right? I mean, what are we? We're supposed to write like a fifth grade is that level? The, is I that think, the rule? I think that's the aim. Okay, I, I don't know, Emory. Do we have a set uh, grade level that we? For some reason, I want to say eighth, okay, but, or maybe ninth. Maybe it is like eighth or ninth. What grade was Lord I mean, of the Flies? I feel like that would make sense for a newspaper to like high school, you know. Sure. 
And so, you know, you can, you know, there are the various like word processing programs that will evaluate your writing for this. I remember at one point, actually, I can't remember if I did or somebody else did ran through a lot of restaurant reviews to see where they fall. And at the time, mine was too high. And I I made a point of bringing it down because it was like 10th grade level. You really, you I think use, you're right about eighth. You use a lot of big words. I think I, I must. They're yeah. good words. Well, yeah. I mean, there's only, because the thing is, we use so many words. And so, like, you start to <laughs> run out. <laughs> so, you've got to reach for some of the bigger ones. Um, but really think about words. It, I, here's the thing. If I use a big word, typically, I really hope its meaning is apparent from the context in the case of stoner food, there was no context because I thought it explained itself. So that right. was a mistake I made. There was no comma, stoner food meaning, or I thought I really mistakenly that to say the cuisine is stoner food was like saying the cuisine is Italian, the cuisine is Brazilian, right. the cuisine is stoner food. Right, right. So, Dave, I think we should jump into it. What is stoner food? Oh, man. All right. Well, first of all, what I was doing while you were giving me the lead in there was trying to find on our uh, Post and Curve Food Group Facebook page, um, the 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 initial review and then the comments under. Because that's where we first started to see this. Yeah. I couldn't find it. I'll find it in a second. But stoner food, uh, I take it to mean like food that has a, um, you know, a mashup of ingredients that sort of like it, it, there's a novelty to it. And it's, it, it you know, it, it's a cheap way of sort of entertaining the palate. And it's also something that like people just are willing to eat a lot of. Um, obviously, like the connotation with like, you know, stoner marijuana, like munchies is something that people have talked about for decades. It's very tired at this point. But like, yeah, there's like it, it's it's fun and like interesting Right. And, yeah. and and when you said cheap, I don't know if you meant it aesthetically or financially, but it tends to be a little of both. I mean, it's, I think it's like, both. it should be yeah. both because this is based on the idea that if you were to get stoned and Dave and I talked about this before we started recording, neither of us do a lot of. Uh, yeah. This, not smoking. We're not the weed smokers. And not not smoking the marijuana and not because <laughs> like this is being recorded and we're at our yeah, place no. of work either. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not at all. It's uh, it's. Uh, alcohol is my drug of choice. Yeah. So, yeah. So, same. Um, so, you know, uh, apologies if I upset the, the stoner community here at all. But, but see, I don't think that's who's upset. No, either. I don't, I don't think it probably is. I mean, they're, they tend to be pretty chill. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great point. Right. But so again, the idea to call this stoner cuisine, it's an outgrowth of the idea that like, after you've been smoking, you're going to go to like the circle K or whatever, you know, wherever it is you go to get your groceries, you know, you're going to the Piggly Wiggly or whatever, and it is cheap. You're not going to lay down money for the most luxurious lobster in the tank. Right. You're there buying, you know, flaming Hot Cheetos. You're buying Cheese Whiz. You're buying – the idea is when you get really stoned, it needs to be much stronger, much more obvious to get your receptors going. And I think um, my understanding is it also, like, it it – relies on building blocks a little bit more right like it's not it's not singular ingredients that then come together to form a plate it's like okay like we know we have uh cheetos and hard-boiled eggs like what do we do now right right um and i think that that's i don't know if that's foundational to the concept of this like this cookery tradition but well i think there is a there is an association between weed and creativity a little bit, right? So it's like, hey, this this seems like this is going to be a great idea. Oftentimes, when you're not stoned, it doesn't seem like as great Repulsive. of an idea. Yeah. yeah, you're like, well, that that's really not where I wanted to go with that. But you know, when people get stoned, they think it's brilliant. We've all been around people who are like, 
I have the most amazing idea, right. you know. And so that's sort of what stoner cuisine, I think, involves is taking these disparate elements and putting them together and making it seem like a wildly good idea. And it should be noted that this isn't, first of all, it's not something that you coined. Oh, God, uh, no. Nor is it a particularly new term. No. Um, that's... And that's, I think, where we, we, you and I both, like, sort of made a misstep. <laughs> it's been around for a while, right? So it's been around so long. So I dated to Kim Severson's story in the New York Times. She didn't invent it either. But I always feel like that is a mainstream enough publication that when – it notes something on the front of its food section like it's hit. The so, gray lady. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Kim published her story in 2010. So it's almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and she had plenty of examples, um, plenty of you know people that were familiar with their food now. So talking about um, it, like what they do at Milk Bar. The idea of cereal milk is super stoner food. Right, right. Um, they talked about um, – the the you know the Korean taco phenomenon right so also like just to point out it's I think it's pretty much everything that like Taco Bell like put on its menu for like four years correct. was just like <laughs> basically you know it's like it, you know well it's a Crunchwrap Supreme inside of an like a, a different one you know it's like this one's made out of Doritos right. like right. that type of stuff too yeah. right 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 it was interesting though so this has been around for so long that the kicker on Kim's story which is right there at the end is quoting Ken Friedman who in the story. It says, you know, Kim, er, Ken Friedman, who is a self-professed major stoner. Of course, Kim, almost a decade later, went on to write the story about Ken Friedman's sexual harassment. Right. Which, so, well, it's with real switch on substance. It was from a different industry. era to different have a kicker era, like that. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, what do you, when you see something like this, obviously, as a critic, you know that you used a term that, you know, you didn't do what, the term didn't do what it needed to Correct. do, right? Right. So how do you, you know, notwithstanding apologize. that. No, no, I don't think apologize. I mean, but I, I like notwithstanding the sticker, forget about all that stuff. But like, obviously, like, I mean, I read the review. I read it pretty closely because, you know. Not Trying all, to figure out what stoner food exactly. was. Like, when's she going to explain this? Help. Uh, no, but I, I mean, there were positive things to say about Dashi. Like to a certain subsect of people, obviously, it's a very popular restaurant. Um why or like how moving forward like do you use a term like stoner food like do you qualify it like do you use something else entirely yeah i obviously need to ask someone other than you yeah. I think that's pretty much what i've learned yeah i misled you obviously. I, yeah so i need to be careful about that but it is a balance and we've talked about that you know you don't you don't ever want to condescend to readers either you really want to be careful not to not to condescend right um but you don't want to be, you know, opaque either. So I, I don't really know what it means going forward. I just to continue to think hard about the words I choose. I think it would be cool to to hear from uh, any of our Winnow listeners um, about like whether stoner food really resonated with them um, for the marijuana connotation or for that culinary tradition that we were describing earlier in this conversation. Because it does seem, and I, it may just be as simple as like media, food media, non-food media. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's where like it it divides and everyone just missed the Kim Severson piece unless you work in the industry, <laughs> right. which which is fair. I mean, who has time to read ten year old yeah. New York Times articles? I mean, say we put so I put this question out on our Facebook group and it was clear not everyone knew what it meant yeah. at all, right? And so and I can't remember if this came up in our Facebook group or in other discussions of stoner food and what it means. This may have been actually Kim explaining it because remember she had thousands of words in which to do so, but saying like this is not what some people initially think. 
is like hippie food, it's very different. It's this isn't like food with a political message. It's kind of the opposite. It's not right. Right. It's, it's like a it's like nihilist food. Yeah, it, it has no purpose. Exactly. Yeah. It has no purpose. It has no meaning, but it has a ton of flavor. You know. <laughs> <laughs> if they want to make another sticker, there's one right there. Right. But yeah, somebody um, who did have who did grasp it, I think, um, partly because I know he's eaten there because he ate there with me. Uh, so I think it's some idea of what I meant by stoner food. And he was saying on the Facebook group that. You know, it, one good definition of it is that it only holds your attention. If it, it, it's not as interesting for as long as you might think, um, if if you weren't stoned. Yeah, right? I think that's a good. Like it's it's right in front of your face, and you're yeah. really excited about it. But like, there's no there's no substance to it. Not not nutritional, more like intellectual substance. Right. right. Like, it doesn't have a lot of depth, and it just kind of keeps going. Like he compared it to a fish guitar solo, where you're like, okay, like maybe it's well made. The parts are well made, but like to just keep doing this and doing this and doing this, um, it kind of loses its appeal. Yeah. So I'm looking at the the post that because we obviously we record the the podcast in advance of when we release them. So we're recording this in real time and reacting to this. And you guys, when you're guys and gals, when you hope you'd move past this. Well, right. Maybe we, who knows what happens seven days in the future when this hits the airwaves. It yeah. could be way worse. Yeah. But um, but I'm reading the the Facebook page right now and like. I think this was a good contribution as well from Michael O'Brien. And again, this That's is- That's what I'm just quoting. This is, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him directly here. Uh, I think stoner aesthetics about losing the capacity to be either bored or overstimulated by sensory input. Exactly. And I think that's a, I think he's right on that. I think nice, nice work, Michael O'Brien. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean- there's also quite a few funny comments on this on this Facebook post. So if anyone listening is not a member of our uh, Post and Courier Food Facebook group, by all means, go sign up. For sure. It's uh, Post and Courier Food. You'll be able to find it very easily. Or if you're subscribed to the email newsletter, we link to it uh, every single week and you can find it there. But we have a lot of chitter chatter about this type of thing as it comes up. And it's a good place to participate in the conversation. Um, so, Yeah. Um, well, stoner food aside, um, are you going to get a sticker? I hope to get a sticker. I really hope to get a sticker. I don't think they're going to sell me one. I hope someone brings me one. I'm sure we could get you one. All right. I'd love to have one. We'll have to, we'll have to find a way to get, um, get a sticker. I've never had something like that made, made about me. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, also in North Charleston, I had a story this week that yeah. I wanted to tell you about a yeah. little bit. So uh, also in North Charleston, um, but in a different part of town, I guess, on the Naval Shipyard uh, is Coast Brewing Company. And I, I went up there um, a couple of weeks ago at this point to talk with Jamie Tenney, who's one of the co-owners of of Coast Brewing. She's been in the scene for over a decade, um, as has her husband, David Merritt. Um, they're very, very popular in the craft brewing community. Um, they are pretty nice people. And um, they're in the middle of a uh, a big, big construction project that has lagged on um, for four years. It started in 2015. And what they're trying to do is put in a tap room. And you probably know that they technically have a tap room, right. like they serve beers if you want, but um, they're putting in a new one up there. And it has been one thing after the other to get this thing into the ground. And so because I think, as you said, in the story that you'd written, when they first opened, because they're so old, that the tap room has since then assumed m way more importance, right? In yeah. the brewery culture. 
for you're you're absolutely right. Not only more importance, but like actual legal status. So when they opened in two thousand, when they first started serving beer in two thousand seven, um, South Carolina law uh, effectively prevented the notion of a tap room from existing. Uh, you couldn't really serve your own beer on premise um, in any meaningful volume um, or at all. I'm not, not, I'm not even quite sure on it cause it feels like ancient history, right. but yeah, it was not permitted. And so the note, and this was at a time when nationally tap rooms had become a little bit of a thing, but anyway, fast forward to 2015, uh, Jamie Tenney, uh, takes a look around and is like, Holy smokes. Everyone that's opening right now has tap rooms. Breweries that do way less volume than us are able to sell, you know, 50, 60, 70% of their volume just on site, which wow. means they don't have to contract with a distributor, which means they don't have to give away margin. Right. Um, this is, and drinkers love this. Drinkers want that experience. Drinkers want to be able to go uh, to to the tap room with, you know, reclaimed barn wood and, and see the stainless steel, you know, mash tons and fermenters. And that's, that's an experience that people are seeking out. We need one of these, you know, to, to, to make sure that we stay relevant. And I think one of the things that attracted me to this story in the first place was Jamie, uh, as many listeners of the winnow will know, if they keep an eye on the beer scene here, Jamie was actually instrumental in getting that very, that tap law or that mm. tap room law changed in the first place. Yeah. So she did all this amazing work and, and truly pretty much anyone you talk to in the industry, um, says that she was front and center on this. Um, she, she formed the pop, the cap group, which went on to, uh, sort of birth the South Carolina brew. Guild. Um, so she was doing the legislative groundwork that effectively um, uh, paved the way for the entire current like generation of of Charleston Brewers, and she didn't actually benefit by it. <laughs> right. So with all the time that she had to be like, oh, I wish I had a tap room, and she was you know, had this opportunity to plan and watch other tap rooms open and experience so many other tap rooms. How, what was her dream tap room? So the Dream Tap Room uh, is a version of what they're building right now. So it's a 5,000 square foot uh, tap room plus a 2,000 square foot walk-in cooler. And that walk-in cooler is going to basically connect the existing tap room, or the mm -hmm. existing brewery, excuse me, which is a single building. Um, it's a brick building on the Naval Shipyard right off Noisette Avenue. Uh, it was built in nine, 1952. She said when they moved in, they had like they found like all sorts of like like odd, like naval measurement paraphernalia. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was a document and instrumentation building yeah. prior to that. So it, and the Navy just got out of Dodge. It was like, well, yeah. we'll just leave it here. Yep. Um, and, uh, it will have a deck. They've left the original Magnolia trees that they're building, or, you know, on the property, they're building around the trees. So oh, they're wow. gonna have some really nice old growth trees right there. Cool. Um, it looks, I mean, I've seen this schematic. It looks like it's going to be amazing, but, Right now, the only thing you can look at is the schematic because it is truly just a hole in the ground still. Um, although I think actually as of like this week, like the hole is mostly patched up at this cool. point. So now they're, as as Jamie told me, they're now uh, finally back to square zero mm -hmm. and like can start building in earnest. Right. Um, so her goal for this is March 2020, which is her birthday. She wants to be able to celebrate in the tap room. And um, she's hoping that uh, she's hoping she gets a chance to do that. And I am too, because I'm, I'm a big fan of Coast Beer. 
Yeah, and it's always great when these pioneers, um, you know, are obviously wanting to stay relevant, but are also, you know, just uh, continuing to be at the top of their game, which I think is very cool. Yeah, and like not letting the industry pass them by too yeah. much. I mean, I don't think Coast is in any danger of being like passed by, even if they chose not to build a tap room. I mean, they they have legitimately good beer, and they have excellent standing in the community, and they've they've stayed very cl- like low to the ground and local, and and done all the right things. So. It didn't feel like they were going to be obsolete without it, but I mean, this business is really difficult. Uh, craft craft beer is, um, and with the the way drinkers want to experience, um, you know, the breweries these days, which is to go to have food, to bring their dogs, to bring their kids a lot of the time, um, to and to to drink the beers on premise. Like you're missing out on a ton of revenue, and like. You can't really afford to do that long term in this business. Right. So you also just wrote recently about another local long timer in in in, uh, in Bahrain, which is Palmetto. The longest made, of timers. The longest yeah. of timers. Uh, and they made up they made some changes. So what, what's happening at Palmetto? Yeah, that's actually so it's interesting to bring that up in context of the coast piece. Mm-hmm. I uh so Palmetto is technically the first craft brewery in South Carolina. They opened in 1994, and you actually, I remember in an old piece, had dug up uh, oh, in yeah. the Post and Courier archives. Yeah. Like we, like the paper ran a story from 1994, yeah. which is great. And the guy, like they're, the bar owner is quoted as like, I think like local beer is going to be big. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed right. it, buddy. Um but yeah, so Palmetto has been around since 1994, and in 27 in December 2017, they were acquired by Catawba Brewing, um, which is out of North Carolina. They have I think four locations, but they're originally in Morgantown, North mm-hmm. Carolina. So there's been a little bit of an identity crisis. I think would be a a fair way to characterize it at Palmetto um, prior to the acquisition, and then certainly since um, they've gone through two or three. Uh, label redesigns, new packaging, um, et cetera, et cetera. So trying to sort of find their place in the industry that has changed quite a bit. Uh, Also, their UG Street uh, facility is under construction and has been since before I moved here. (laughs) Um, So... You know they're they're trying to sort of feel it out. So anyway, I I got a tip uh, not so long ago um, with the unfortunate news that um, that they had that Palmetto had laid off uh, their production staff. Um, and you know, as you know, when tips come in, like it's like all right, cool. Like, it, I heard that like they laid everyone off. I was like, well, all right, let's get on the phone and see what's actually going on here. So I spoke with Catawba's co-owner. Um, whose name is Billy Pyatt, a nice guy out of North Carolina. He was in Asheville when we spoke. And he confirmed that they had laid off four employees uh, from the production team, which um, I believe constituted the entire brewing team, not the entire workforce Mm -hmm. at at Palmetto. Um, They have about 20 employees prior to that uh, layoff, and only four of them are production employees. But the reason that they laid them off in part was because they're retrofitting the the plant on UG Street to be able to produce hard seltzer, uh, craft hard seltzer, among other products. He mm-hmm. emphasized that it was not just hard seltzer, but he did confirm that one of them was. And so this was the nature, sort of the nature of the tip was like they laid everyone off and are just going to be making right. seltzer and like this is, this is fucked up, man. Um, I... That's not what I got out of Billy. And like to his credit, he was like, he tried to be, he seemed to be fairly open with me. He seemed credible. Um, but they are going to be, you know, they moved beer production of the Palmetto 
you know, portfolio mm-hmm. to Catawba facilities in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that big breweries do. Like if they have excess capacity in one like location and they have not enough capacity in the other, if they have to, you know, idle that plant to install new equipment, as is the case in this instance, um, you know, they can. I asked Billy, you know, what's are you worried about losing a connection with South Carolina drinkers, you know, who are sensitive to the idea that this stuff should be brewed here? Um, he emphasized to me that it's they're going to bring it back. They he says that they're going to bring mm. beer production back in four to six months um, once they get the new equipment um, installed. So it's so he's saying they're going to produce seltzer and beer side by side ultimately. Yeah. And other things yeah. as well, oh, um, okay. which is, it's totally possible. Sure. I mean, there's not, uh, Anything's possible. yeah, there's no, there's no reason you wouldn't be able to use the equipment for both. And like, mm-hmm. my understanding is that part of the upgrades are a new canning line, mm-hmm. um, which is going to allow them more versatility with packaging, um, which is, you know, obviously as you introduce new products, you need that. Um, so it's it's certainly plausible. Um, we'll see if it happens, and we'll be keeping an eye on it, obviously. But that's an instance where you know Palmetto has sort of gone through a lot of different um, you know variations. Too strong a word, but it's it's been sort of like looking or casting about for an identity sure. for a little while. And now hard seltzer obviously is a um, is an enormous category. I mean, you're looking at 200% growth. I think 165% of that came in July 2019 alone. So month over month. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's insane. Yeah. Um, it's going gangbusters right now. You can't walk down King Street without seeing someone drinking a, a Truly or a White Claw. Craft brewers want a piece of this. Um, and it makes sense. I mean, Billy told me, he's like, we're not stupid. And I don't think that he is. Yeah. Like, I, I think that that's, you know, per, the category and in industry jargon is perceived better for you be- beverages mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or beyond beer beverages, yep. the hard kombuchas, the hard coffees, the hard yep. seltzers. That's where a lot of drinker preference is going right now. Um, part of the reason I think that I like a tipster reached out to me in the first place was because I think it doesn't sit well with people in the brewing community who, you know, who started this thing to build, um, to build a movement and, you know, as a, uh, a business dedicated to, to educating and evangelizing about full flavored traditional, uh, you know, beers. Um, it feels a little, uh, like a betrayal to some people. Right. And I mean, just to bring it around full circle to the stoner food we talked about at the outset. No, <laughs> Everything's think, about stoner food. Everything has its place is what I was going to yep. say. Right. So I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with hard seltzer. I don't drink it, but you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with stoner food, for instance. That may not be my favorite, but it's it, it, stoner food is best. When you're stoned, you know, hard, hard seltzer is best for seltzer lovers. You know, like I think sometimes when you we change the venue, when you change the audience, sometimes you also have to change the product. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I don't know. We'll see what happens with with uh, with Palmetto and with Dashi uh, and with Coast for that matter. But yeah, I mean, like the it'll be interesting if people want this out of because part of the thing is like going to a craft beer tap room um, or a craft brewery tap room um, is a very deliberate choice, right? Yep. Like there are plenty of places that serve alcohol that aren't breweries, yep. you know, so going there um, and then to get a seltzer um, or to only be able to get a seltzer. Um, it feels like that's a totally different customer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah.
All right. Well, that's it for the window today. Um, if you want to get in touch, again, I'm Hannah Raskin. You can reach me at hraskin at postandcourier.com. I'm Dave Infante. That's D-I-F-N-A. The, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> Jesus. I'm Dave Infante. That's dinfante at postandcourier.com. And we'll see you back here soon. And that's all for this episode of The Winnow. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. It was edited and directed by me. I'm Jamie Parker. See y'all later. <laughs>